You are now listening to the Hack My Age podcast, the show that brings you guests for the woman going through the menopause journey. I'm your host, Zora Benamu, a gerontologist, certified sports nutrition, menopause, and breathing coach. I'm the author of the Longevity Master Plan and the cookbook Eating for Longevity. And if you're a woman in perimenopause or postmenopause, check out the programs on hackmyage.com website to biohack and optimize your menopause experience because menopause is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So now please head on over to Apple Podcasts or Spotify to subscribe to the podcast and leave a review to help others find us too. This is a really important point because it costs nothing, but makes a huge impact for me to support a podcast for menopausal women to normalize this conversation about menopause and attract even more amazing guests to the show for you and for me. You can now watch all of our podcast interviews on the Hack My Age YouTube channel. Some of our guests bring slideshows, so it's really great to have. Every week there is a new video, so just search Hack My Age on youtube.com or find the link on the Hack My Age website. Hello, age disruptors. Today I'm recording this podcast with a live studio audience. All of you attending this recording now are members of the Hack My Age VIP program. And part of being in this exclusive club is the ability to dial in and watch the interviews as they are recorded. And you can ask your own questions. If you want to be a part of this amazing community, go to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash Hack My Age and sign up not only for these cool interviews, but so much more. Today's podcast is sponsored by the Institute of Bioidentical Medicine, which is the authority when it comes to understanding bioidentical hormones. And right now I am in the middle of taking their menopause method course, and I am so impressed. This is a self-paced course uh, designed by Dr. David Rosensweet, who's been treating women going through menopause for nearly three decades. I can highly recommend this program, particularly if you are a doctor or someone who's actually prescribing hormones to women for menopause. And if you're not, that's okay. Make an appointment at iobim.org to find out more about the program to see if you're a candidate for the menopause method. And ask for a discount with the code Zora, Z-O-R-A. And if you're just looking for a qualified doctor who's highly trained in menopause medicine, check out their sister site, Bright, B-R-I-T-E, dot live. Empower yourself with information and a doctor that you can trust because menopause is inevitable, but suffering is optional. So I met our next guest while learning more about bioidentical hormones through Quicksilver. Now, you're going to meet Carol Peterson, who is a compounding pharmacist with decades of experience helping patients improve their quality of life through bioidentical hormone replacement therapy. And yes, I said decades, even when they weren't fashionable back then. So Carol, she graduated from the University of Wisconsin School of Pharmacy and is also a certified nutritional practitioner. And she shares her passion of optimizing health with organizations such as the International College of Integrated Medicine and the American College of Apothecaries, the American Pharmacists Association, and the Alliance for Pharmacy Compounding. Now, she was also the founder and first chair for the Compounding Special Interest Group with the American Pharmacists Association. And she 
serves as chair for the Integrated Medicine Consortium too. So she also, interestingly enough, hosts co-hosts a radio program called Take Charge of Your Health, which airs in the greater New York area. So I'll have a link to that in the show notes. And it doesn't stop there. She is also on the medical advisory board for the Center for Menstrual Cycle and Ovulation Research. And Carol has been in this world for a long time and has attended hundreds of complementary medicine conferences and reading and researching staggering numbers of books and scientific papers, all while co-owning an alternative uh, medicine practice and in, and in, in practice with a compounding pharmacy specializing in bioidentical hormone therapies too. So you can probably guess what we're going to talk about today. Yes, bioidentical hormones, menopause, and testing. But before we do, let's read that fancy disclaimer. This information is intended to increase the knowledge base of listeners. Take up this information and all other sources of it with your own medical practitioner. So welcome, Carol. How are you doing? Thank you so much. Thanks for your invitation, Zora. I always like the opportunity to spread the word because I'm really passionate that women and men should have the information they need to, uh, like the radio show, take charge of their own health. Um, we, we've too long passed on our power to conventional medicine in particular with, without good results. Well, sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't, right? And and if there's that's why people go seek alternative medicine or alternative therapies because it's just not working, right? And so we there's there's something for everybody, and I think everyone needs to look beyond if they're not getting results, if not getting help, or if they're getting secondary effects and side effects, um, maybe some medication, all that. Then you know it's it's worth looking into other things. I I believe, and. You know, let's just give a little background on how we met. You know, I, I I reached out to Dr. Chris Shade of Quicksilver Scientific. It's a company out there that does um, heavy metal testing as well as hormones and all these other things. And I I was particularly interested in the heavy metal testing, and and I got the test kit. But I also got a box of hormones, uh, which I didn't expect. And so, of course, I was curious to learn more about them and, and how to use them. So they sent me to you because you understand their formulas and you share them with your own clients. And, and after we spoke on that Zoom call, I was amazed with your knowledge about bioidentical hormones and, and testing as well. So I had to get you on to share what you told me. So let's first start with the basics. In case women here are completely new to hormones and bioidenticals, um, or do we start maybe with explaining what hormones um, women, which ones like women should pay attention to in their perimenopausal years? Let's maybe start there. That's a great place to start because women do start becoming symptomatic. And it can be really early. It could be late 20s, early 30s. And for the most part, uh, conventional medicine dismisses their concerns because some um, blood markers haven't really changed um, significantly enough in, in the opinion of people ordering tests and whatnot. They don't believe that they, they should be treated, that the symptoms should be treated. Hot flushes occur early. Sleep problems occur early. Increasing anxiety occurs early. And for the most part, this is easily remedied 
by using progesterone. Uh, women are not always ovulating. Uh, this There were some studies put out by Dr. Jerry Lynn Pryor at the University of British Columbia. There are many skipped cycles with no ovulation, and women still bleed, so they don't know that they've skipped an ovulation. But if they have, from the second part of the cycle, uh, mid-cycle to the uh, first day of bleeding, the luteal phase, normally if ovulation occurs, you get a super generous surge of progesterone. So now that's missing. Another thing that happens in uh, perimenopause, often ignored too, symptoms can occur in the follicular phase, the first part of the cycle. And uh, doctors often ignore the effect of progesterone. We have menstrual cycle charts that show the, the waves of progesterone and estradiol. And you can look these up and they're deceiving because progesterone is a really abundant hormone. It's measured in nanograms per uh, milliliter, sometimes deciliter, but milliliter more often. And estradiol is measured in picograms. And the picograms is a thousand times smaller. So where you're seeing big waves of estradiol happening and progesterone's flatlining, you've got in the follicular phase, you've got to imagine that line to be a thousand times higher than it is. Goes off the paper. I was speaking to a doctor who was trying to create a, a chart that was valid so she could show her patients, but you, you simply can't. And that's why it's, it's sort of shortened. But because of that strong visual, many doctors dismiss the importance of progesterone in the first part of the cycle. And for the most part, that progesterone that's measured then comes from the adrenal glands. Progesterone is an important adrenal hormone. So the more stress that you're under, the more progesterone you use up and you could be deficient. So if symptoms are also occurring in the first part of the cycle, it's time to address. And uh, there are long-term consequences if you don't. Uh, progesterone is extremely important in all sorts of bodily functions and the integrity of your um, Metabolic health, uh, bone remodeling, for instance, is strongly under the influence of progesterone. So if you ignore this, these early signs of low progesterone, you're starting to lose bone mass uh, even more rapidly than we already know we do with aging. Or maybe it's already uh, so entrenched that it's part of what we consider aging, that low progesterone consequence. So progesterone first. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting that you started with progesterone because so many people would start with estrogen. And uh, there are a couple things. One is it's interesting. I, I've always learned, I, I learned definitely about this incredible surge of progesterone and it's so much higher than estrogen in the charts. I'm glad you brought that out because we don't have a, a visual for that. And I, and I, I'm interesting, yeah, because bone remodeling as well is associated with estrogen. So I'm wondering what is more uh, in terms of bone remodeling, what's more powerful, what's more important? I'm, I'm sure bo they're both important, but is there, we, I often hear estrogen before progesterone when it comes to bone remodeling. 
And it has much less effect and might even have a negative effect if you have too much estrogen in relationship to progesterone. Uh, progesterone stimulates the cells that create new bone growth. Estrogen's been identified as stimulating the, the cells that um, break down old bone. So when estrogen is depleted, you have less um, bo old bone breakdown, which you do want. You don't want to save the old cells. I just read another um, possible activity that estrogen, using estrogen could actually be uh, countering your, your bones. And this is in high estrogen relative to progesterone, the hormone prolactin goes up. And prolactin can actually diminish your, your um, bone cells and the rate of bone turnover if it's too high. Uh, what brings prolactin down is, uh, you can probably guess, progesterone. <laughs> so, uh -huh. so it also occurs with hypothyroidism. So um, a laboratory marker that maybe we should start looking at that's very, very rarely used. Uh, Dr. Ray Pete wrote about it in several of his newsletters. And I'm beginning to think we should be looking at that regularly. So uh, progesterone, much more powerful. The androgenic hormones also are probably involved in new bone growth, uh, DHEA and testosterone. So we shouldn't really ignore these hormones either. We sort of consider it as an afterthought. And I believe that this, uh, you, you brought this up and it really is in uh, like uh, urban myth or something that estrogen is the thing that is responsible for all. And it happens to be involved with a lot of pharma propaganda, I think particularly coming from Premarin, which interesting enough, Premarin, um, they've identified over 60 steroids in a Premarin tablet, uh, most of them estrogenic, some of them progesterone-like, and some of them androgen-like. Uh, so what we think we know about hormone replacement based on Premarin is, is a little deceiving because we don't actually know what's going on. And many of these steroids are not bioidentical, and we can define that right now. It's identical in structure to the hormones your own body makes. This is a product coming from pregnant mare's urine. So it's bioidentical for a horse, but it's not bioidentical for a human. I'm glad yeah, you pointed that out because uh, the a lot of women hear about the Women's Health Initiative study and they're using Premarin uh, for the outcomes of those. And, and, they, and, and actually research today, I mean, that's another question I have for you. Are we making that distinction between bioidentical hormones? Are we, because when I read a study, it's just HRT and I'm like, I say, well, what kind and what <laughs> delivery method? And is it Premarin? Is it, is it bioidentical? And it just doesn't seem like there's any of these sort of head-to-head -head studies out there. Uh, no, and there should be. One, one of the things that occurred uh, for for a while was a whole flurry of studies comparing oral estrogen to topical estradiol, whether it be a gel or a patch. And the studies were uh, coming out with 
the oral estrogens increase uh, fibrinogen that's leading to clotting, C-reactive protein, sex hormone binding globulin, um, more so than the topical estradiol. But when you read the study, they're comparing oral estrogen, Premarin, to estradiol. So this is apples and oranges. Studies like this should be just thrown right out. There's also this myth that you should never take oral estrogen because of these studies. There are a few studies, and why weren't they done more so? Um, oral estradiol has been on the market, first as estrase and now generic generics for decades. So is oral estradiol is problematic as Premarin. Actually, the studies I found was either not so or equivocal, wasn't quite sure. But I think that deserves more investigation instead of coming to a strong conclusion that you never use oral estrogen. I say never use Premarin, but there may be a space for estradiol. I'm not sure. This episode is sponsored by Oxford HealthSpan, the creators of my favorite supplement, Primadine. I admit it, I am a total supplement junkie, but if I had to choose only one, it would be this one. And it's because Primadine is spermidine, and this is shown to activate autophagy, which is super important. Now, this is a cellular cleanup and recycling process that declines as we age. So as we get older, our cells accumulate a lot of junk and waste, which isn't good for our cells, our health, nor our longevity. So we need to clean it up. And if you want the research on this, go to OxfordHealthSpan.com and you can see all of it, showing how spermidine supports our brain, our hormones, and our heart health. And another great side effect is stronger hair, skin, and nails, but also longer eyelashes. But, you know, the real important reason why I love Primadine is because I have never, ever received as much feedback on a product I recommended as I have with Primadine. Literally every week, someone reaches out to me on Facebook or Instagram with an amazing testimonial. And... Most of the time, it's about improved sleep. And even some of you told me it's reversed a bit of your gray hair too. So I find that totally amazing. So I can honestly say with 100% certainty that Primadine is the best spermidine supplement you'll ever find. And you can try it with a 15% discount by using the code Zora, Z-O-R-A, on OxfordHealthSpan.com. Just be sure to get back to me with your results too. Now enjoy the show. Yes, let's clarify a little bit for some of the listeners who are hearing this for the first time. You know, they've heard the word progesterone, they heard the word estrogen, and they heard the word estradiol. So maybe you want to talk a little about, about the differences in uh, the different types of estrogen we have and what a woman going through menopause and this transition needs to know, because uh, sometimes I simplify things. Well, there's estrogens and that's about building up proliferation and growth or repair. And then there's the progesterone, which is the calming and the relaxing hormone. And it's, it's, it's very simplified. It's so much more than that, but maybe you can just give a woman who doesn't really know anything about these hormones, some kind of a very simple guideline on what she needs to, to pay attention to. Well, it starts to get very confusing. 
but estradiol is the estrogen, one, one of the most potent, um, and it's uh, produced in the ovaries. But as we've found out in later decades, it's produced all over the place. So it's uh, also a conundrum about how you're going to measure your hormones. Um, after menopause, the major estrogen is estrone, and it's made in your uh, skin and fat cells from DHEA, another whole story, or it's a metabolite of estradiol. And finally, um, estriol is um, a metabolite of both of those. And most studies uh, concentrate on those three estrogens. Some go so far as to say women only produce three estrogens, which is wrong, wrong, wrong. There's probably 20, 30 estrogens. And maybe we haven't even identified all the estrogens in our body. Um, we're not particularly looking, but those are the major, and they're metabolized into more hormones. And uh, one researcher uh, was making a supposition that the adrenal glands produce estrogens also that we haven't even identified yet. So it's complicated. Um, <laughs> on yeah. the other hand, progesterone is pretty solid. Progesterone does metabolize into uh, derivatives too as your body is using it, but it's much more simple than, than the estrogen picture. Okay. So yeah, let's, so we now we got estrogen and, est and progesterone, and then we've also got testosterone. Do you think we need to pay attention to that too? Absolutely. 50% of women's testosterone comes from the ovaries. Um, another good part of it would be adrenal glands from DHEA. And without testosterone, we don't have good uh, protein synthesis. It's the hormone that directs all proteins in your body. So when you look at an aging man or woman and they are losing their muscle mass and their bone mass, they're actually shrinking in height. Uh, this is a really good picture of being very deficient in testosterone. Um, your heart needs testosterone, obviously. Your immune system, all of these proteins that we produce uh, with our immune system are under the direction of testosterone. If you are somebody with um, a lot of allergies and autoimmune uh, picture, if you would measure your testosterone just in the serum, you would find yourself at the bottom of the range and testosterone would help you a great deal. These are the three main hormones that women learn about when they are exploring hormone therapy, right, in general. So let's talk a little bit about, about what happens to a woman. She's, she's, she, she has, particularly if she hasn't done research, but I always encourage women to do, to learn as much as you can about them, the symptoms that can occur when you're deficient in them or even excessive once you are, if you are on the hormone therapy. But what can a woman expect when she walks into her doctor's office and asks for hormone therapy? What are you seeing with your clients? Oh, I'm seeing some very alarming things, some alarming trends. Um, birth control pills have come into fashion for treating menopausal symptoms, and nothing could be worse. Even uh, the so-called low-dose birth control pills that we have now are much, much stronger than our own hormones and um, even stronger than uh, estradiol supplementation or Premarin even. So these are really, really strong. And they also are strong 
um, obstructionists in your body uh, for proper endocrine functioning. So I'm so sad to see that. So when women go in and they complain of some uh, early menopausal symptoms, it's often offered. Another very, very alarming trend is, is going on. This is also common in perimenopause that you start having some very heavy bleeds. And why is this happening? It's because you've become deficient in progesterone, particularly in the first part of the cycle, as I was mentioning from the adrenal glands, when there is high stress, progesterone disappears. And you need that progesterone to moderate the proliferation of the endometrium that's stimulated by estrogen. So if you're having heavy bleeding, this is what's happening. And it's really, really easy to supplement progesterone in the follicular phase and get that control back and start having normal bleeding patterns again. Uh, conventional medicine does not know what to do with this. Conventional medicine is now uh, promoting that you be uh, fitted with a uh, Marina IUD, which has a progestion in it. Now, does, does it stop the heavy bleeding? Yes, sometimes, but not always. And now you've introduced a fake progesterone-like molecule that again mucks up your endocrinology. So it's really, really quite horrifying. The other thing that women should know, this heavy bleeding pattern, which is really easily fixed, is the reason for the great majority of the 700,000 hysterectomies that are performed in the U.S. every year. Um, conventional medicine says there's, there's no relief from that except remove your organs, and that is, is really a very false misdirection. Again, we don't even know all the things the uterus does. It's an organ that's essential to our body, even as a placeholder. Uh, for our other organs, you start taking out an organ, other things shift around and prolapse and whatnot. Uh, you should be very, very leery of this suggestion when it's so easy to fix. I am glad you mentioned uh, the birth control because what surprises me, I meet a lot of women on my reels and my social media and everybody's commenting on hormone therapy and get all kinds. And I, I find a lot of women are scared by hormones. And then, uh, but yet when you ask them, are you on birth control or have you ever taken birth control? They say, yeah, of course, no problem. So <laughs> then it just, you know, it, it doesn't make any sense to me. Why would you be so easily taking, you know, something synthetic rather than something bioidentical, it's identical to your body. And I just think that's where the work needs to be done that the word needs to be spread. And that's why I'm having you here today. And, and the other thing is you mentioned progestin and I, I'm, I hear the woman who's totally confused, progestin, progesterone. What, what is this? What is the difference? And you mentioned, this is a synthetic, uh, it's a, it's a molecule that is not, uh, similar to what you have in your own body. So again, if you're listening out there, it's progesterone that you need to look for and uh, stay away from the progestins. I just wanted to reiterate that. To complicate that, um, in the scientific literature, many times they write progesterone and they're really referring to a progestin or mm -hmm. they lump it all together, calling it progestogens, like they're one in the same. So you have to be very careful when you're doing your research. And I, I have to say, um, I often wonder about 
about physicians because they accept this nonsense like um, all progesterone and progesterone-like molecules are the same or all estrogens are the same. These are basic tenets of the North American Menopause Society and um, the Endocrine Society and the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology. They put out these platforms, and and my question is, did these doctors fail their physiology and biochemistry courses before they went to medical school? Because they shouldn't stand for, for such strangeness. You alter a molecule, and you create great changes and great differences in activity, and you create problems for your liver to get rid of it is is a huge problem. So when these organizations take this on as their mantra, 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 however you like to pronounce it, it's, it's very deceiving. And doctors who blindly accept this um, I, I really don't understand how, how, how they can be satisfied with that because I know that they were given courses before they went to medical school as a prerequisite that should help them understand that there are big differences. So I, I don't understand this. I think it's a, it's a can of worms. Perhaps they don't even want to open and they need to because 50% of the population is a female. So if not more, I think we need to pay attention to that. And doctors uh, going through this, I mentioned to you earlier uh, when we had a discussion um, on the Zoom that I'm doing the Dr. Rosensweet's uh, menopause method training. It's through the Institute of Bioidentical Medicine and Boy, it's 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 complicated too. I mean, a doctor has to really be on it with his patient. You don't just give him a prescription, a standard prescription, and say off on you go and good luck. It's it's a lot of uh, back and forth, a lot of discussion, conversations because women are absorbing them differently. Uh, there's you got to learn about different uh, methods. Uh, delivery methods, uh, dosages, uh, where it is, you know, you want to have a Goldilocks zone where you want to be. It's just, and it's expensive too. So it's again, another hurdle for a doctor. And I can, I can understand maybe why they're, they don't want to go there, but they cannot ignore it. I'm sorry. It's just, there's too many women who need help and giving them uh, the basic, uh, if they're learning just something very simple, very basic, I, I, I'm, I'm too, I, I'm weary about that as well because I do meet women who are on uh, delivery methods that I particularly don't agree with from from the way I've learned it, like the oral estrogen, for example, uh, or or perhaps even doctors are are actually not giving any relief at all or the appropriate relief for a woman who's got stress and anxiety, depression, and they'll give her an antidepressant when in fact, perhaps it's her hormones. Uh, Let's take a look at that rather than just give a medicine. Because for me personally, I understand hormones are much safer than a drug um, by far. Uh, And so if you're going to experiment with something, uh, you know, honestly, again, do your own due diligence, do your own research, have your discussion with your doctor about the risks versus benefits. I'm not saying every woman should be on hormones, but you, it's, it's just being dismissed too much. And I'm not sure if you're seeing this in your practice, but I do see a lot with, uh, with a lot of women out there who just are denied. They suck up your, you know, 
suck it up and pull up your pants and just get on with it. Every woman's gone through this and, you know, it's nothing new. Uh, it's been like this for generations. Uh, it'll pass. Just deal with it. And to me, that's that's wrong, too. Any thoughts on that? Are you seeing any people like that, too? I like your point. People uh, are much um, less afraid of antidepressants and anti-anxiety agents and sleep drugs. And I am very afraid of those drugs uh, be- because of their toxicity and their ineffectiveness. And um, sometimes addiction even arises from the use of some of them. Uh, I uh, am working with one client who's been using an anti-anxiety drug for something like 17 years. Yet, um, you know, she's, she's come to me, but she has such fear of progesterone. It's it's unbelievable, <laughs> and and uh, she's she's hanging on to her drug, and said, "Well, let's try this again in a few more months." And so it's inconceivable to me, knowing from my background uh, how these drugs work and and their toxicity, and you your your dependence on drugs that really aren't satisfying your body's basic needs. Um, it's it's a Band-Aid, and it's a Band-Aid with other effects, too. So uh, why not use exactly what your body was producing and, and maybe in some circumstances could produce again? I would like to say I worked with uh, women with severe PMS, again, progesterone deficiency during the luteal phase, a big one, and generous amounts of progesterone would would bring that back. And then I learned later of a few circumstances when women uh, in late peri were, would be diagnosed with premature menopause, no cycling, and not cycling for a long time. If you put them back on hormones, it resets. And if they're relatively young still, they'll start ovulating again. So something to be considered, uh, which is like, Wow, you could get pregnant after you start <laughs> ovulating it normally again. So uh, it could be a benefit or maybe something to think about when, when you're using hormones. Yes. Yeah. Make sure you use protection again. <laughs> uh, that's, you know, one of the, I guess, drawbacks of using hormones that some people, you know, have, they, they, they do like the menopause experience because they don't have to worry about getting pregnant anymore, but now we have to, but I think there's a lot of benefits too that outweigh any of those risks. Now, I remember when I was first learning about hormones, I was confused about what bioidentical, uh, sorry, what about the difference between uh, prescribed hormones that you'd get in a pharmacy? Your doctor says, go to the pharmacy, get pick them up. It's in a box. It's uh, FDA approved. It's out there and everybody uses the same old uh, thing. And then there's the compounded ones. So what is the differences between those two? Okay, so it's a whole different set of rules. Um, the drugs that are approved by the FDA go through the FDA approval process, and pharmacies are regulated primarily by the states, although the FDA retains um, authority over all uh, drug substances. You, you have to defend any, any place that any active ingredients are held has to satisfy the FDA requirements for, for purity and consistency. So um, there's that. Compounding pharmacies use the very same active ingredients 
that an FDA approved product might have. Now, FDA approved products include, <clears throat> excuse me, both bioidentical and non-bioidentical. So as I mentioned before, estradiol in a gel, estradiol in a patch, those are bioidentical, perfectly fine. Prior to the FDA approving a gel in um, the U.S., was available in Europe for a long time. Compounding pharmacies made gels in all sorts of strengths. And that's another advantage of compounding. You can create different strengths. Uh, you can create different dosage forms. Now, suppose that um, you wanted to use a topical and a gel formulation irritated your skin too much. We can switch to other topical things, oils and creams. Um, instead of a gel, but each time you make a change, that does affect how the active ingredient is absorbed. So it's it's great variety here. So there's, as you mentioned before, just what does HRT mean? It could mean thousands of things. So mm -hmm. <laughs> it's a good first question. Yet I see, um, I follow a few Facebook groups uh, to actually this is really good to learn um, about the failures. And a lot of doctors don't understand they have failures and they think they're doing a good job. Yet uh, there are women, especially, but men too, they're out there on Facebook groups and uh, they're telling their stories about going to multiple doctors and not finding adequate relief. Uh, it's, it's rampant. So uh, many patients are just lost to the practitioners. Practitioner doesn't notice when somebody disappears particularly. And one of the things I advocate for patients to insist on is that they are 100% satisfied with their hormone therapy. And we also have this kind of drilled into us from conventional medicine. You get on a drug. You go to the doctor, it's not working so well, and you have really some painful side effects, and the doctor says, um, well, that's the best we can do. You've got to put up with it. And I say with, with hormone therapies, with bioidentical hormones, you do not, uh, sat you're not satisfied for less than 100%. You can get there, and you should get there. And if you're working with a practitioner, it's important to have that dialogue. But even more importantly, Zora, as you said earlier, women need to know what hormone does what. And so they have some idea of what direction they, they should be going in. And it's really quite, quite simple. Once, once you learn those activities, um, what, um, what to look for. I have a blog on my website, for instance, and uh, it's got over 100 symptoms of progesterone deficiency. Wow. Women should know <laughs> that because a lot, a lot of those are simply attributed, again, from our culture to estrogen. And I see on some pa pages, there's like, uh, women who are saying, you need more estrogen, you need more estrogen. And women are going up and up and up on estrogen and making themselves sicker and sicker. And uh, here's, here's another thing. Um, they're going in for a serum test and they think that they are their number. So they're saying, oh, I need an optimum level of estradiol should be should be 100, should be 150. And some doctors say this too. 
um, we don't know what the optimum estrogen level is, nor do we know when you take a measurement for estradiol, what all those other myriad estrogens are doing in your body, contributing to your estrogen effect. Yet women are hanging on to their number and said, oh, six months ago, my number was 13. I'm obviously not getting enough. When you do a serum test and you are using um, estradiol, you have to know when you took your last dose and the hours that have elapsed till you do your blood draw for your test. If you do it 12 hours later, it's gone. <laughs> it's, it's virtually not there. If you do it in two to three hours, it may be higher than, than normal. If you, if um, many doctors suggest like four to six hours after the last dose to be on the downside of the curve in your serum. What happens when you take something, it goes up in your serum and then goes down. Down means it's gone to either two places, out, it's excreted, or it's gone to the tissues where you want it. So that's all you know. If you're uh, taking estradiol, for instance, you want to verify that you're absorbing your dosage form. That's all you're getting. It doesn't tell you if it's the right dose for you, if it's uh, effective or not. You have to say that, not <laughs> not the test. The test doesn't tell you that. <clears throat> Another interesting quirk with serum testing, if you use topical progesterone and any creams or oils on your skin, it's not showing up on the serum test. So um, progesterone topically has been discredited by conventional medicine simply because it's not showing up on the serum as well as you would like. So um, there's also this idea, if you don't get progesterone up to a luteal level in the serum, it's not protecting your uterus. But it really doesn't mean that. If, if that's what you have to see, you have to use oral progesterone to get a luteal level in your serum. Um, but it does not mean that other forms of progesterone didn't help you just as well. So wow. it's quite confusing. It's, it <laughs> is confusing. And actually, this is a good point to start talking about testing because, uh, and, and, and you know, Dr. Rosensweet and his, his yes, program. Yes, I'm on so, his board as well. <laughs> yeah. So you can understand what I'm learning here. And he he's come up with some goalposts, right, of testing. And he's a fan of the 24-hour hormone urine test. And he's through his research and through his 20-something plus years of experience of hearing women throughout the, the years of their symptoms, as well as testing and testing and testing, he's come up with this sort of Goldilocks zone, which in terms of he wants the, the lower end, you don't want to go below the lower end because you're not going to be protecting your bones, your brain, your heart, and and uh, and all and your vagina will be protected, having good sexual function. He, maybe your symptoms will be alleviated, maybe not, but he wants you in that minimum. And then he doesn't want you to overdose uh, either. So what are your thoughts about his testing method? Because I've never seen any other doctor test this uh, this way and come up with the sort of uh, Goldilocks zone. He spent a lot of time um, refining what he, th he thinks about that. He uh, uses Rhine Lab and Dr. Frank Nort uh, runs that lab. And 24-hour urine testing uses um, GC gas chromatograph, a mass spec to identify the hormones. 
And this actually is the gold standard in testing. It identifies the exact molecule, and this is important to know. And um, what you're measuring in the urine is what's being excreted. Now, how that relates to what your tissues have um, still retaining, it's, it's still a consideration. Now, how do you learn that? You learn that from the patient. The patient tells you how, how they're, they're feeling. So Dr. Rosensweet, I think, has some pretty good ideas of how his patients are feeling with relative to the testing he's been doing on them. So I, I think he's probably pretty solid in that Goldilocks zone. Although um, he said to me, uh, Carol, you've changed me uh, because I promote um, larger doses of progesterone than is sometimes recommended. We had um, in the pharmacy I worked with, we followed Dr. Katerina Dalton's philosophy from the 1950s. She is the woman who identified PMS. She named it premenstrual syndrome. And she identified progesterone as being the treatment for lots and lots and lots of situations. As, as I said, if you look at the 100 plus uh, deficiency symptoms, you'll, you'll get a flavor of what progesterone does. So her dosing was very generous. Uh, she started with injectable progesterone and moved to um, vaginal suppositories, 400, 600 milligrams at a time. When we were compounding, we did an oral capsule in oil and our minimum starting dose was 400 milligrams, 100 is, milligrams, four times a day. Which is much higher than what the standard dosage of 200, generally one between 100, 200 would be, right? That's why you're saying right. it's higher dose, yeah. Right, higher dose. But then we were looking for complete relief of symptoms, right? 100%. Okay. 100%. <laughs> Again, uh, one of my heroes, too, is Jerry Lynn Pryor. She looked at osteoporosis and progesterone dosing. Her minimum dose is 300 milligrams. Yet somehow uh, women are being offered 100, 200 milligrams. Their symptoms are, are maybe partially relieved, not all relieved. And it's not the best bone protection. So why are we hanging on to this? Then along came John Lee and said, um, women made uh, 20 milligrams of progesterone a day and don't need any more than that. 20 milligrams? And, that's yes. it? So John, that's, 10 times yes. less? <laughs> wow. And, and unfortunately, he was pretty influential. He um, was on a speaking circuit. And he's, he um, really, I did a deep dive into this. Like, where is he getting his 20 milligrams per day? I never did find it. If there's a published study, doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Obviously, I can't prove a negative. But... Uh, he, he didn't really take into account all the sources of progesterone. Your nerve cells make it, your mast cells make it, your brain cells independently make it. It's made all over the place. So he wasn't accounting for that. And um, uh, Dr. Ray Pete, who um, was the original researcher on progesterone as um, a biology uh, researcher, uh, he sent me an article and said from the um, ovarian uh, vein, they were able to measure 100 to 200 milligrams per day just in that one source. So John Lee uh, promoted a philosophy that was, I think, was 
is actually dangerous and is shortfalling many women. However, let me, we'll go to another test, saliva testing. So he embraced saliva testing. And what happens when you test the saliva for hormones, if you're supplement, um, you can glean some information, original information. And this is I, I like. With saliva testing, you can identify deficiencies just fine when you are not supplemented. But the companies want you to keep using saliva testing to track your progress. So if you go above uh, topically that very little amount of progesterone, the test goes way up. And it, it got so bad that the testing companies created another range higher and said this could be a supplemented range. Where'd they get that from? They just made it up. Um, <laughs> wow. Uh, no, not, no research behind that, just made it up. It's, it's a lab construction. They said, okay, well, we really don't want women using much more than 20 milligrams because we're already too high and completely ignoring um, the, the women's effects. So uh, Dr. Lee promoted the use of a product called Progest at the time. Later, he had his own progesterone cream. At that dosage, it was given about 16 milligrams a day. And um, we, we sold Progest after he started promoting it. And we had many, many, many complaints. Actually, women got worse on the low doses. It actually acts, low doses of progesterone act to enhance estrogen, but then it's diverted all over the place. So it doesn't really supply any balance. One Facebook page calls it estrogen kickback. All your estrogen symptoms magnify on those low doses. And well, no so, wonder sometimes women say they feel worse on on hormones than before. I mean, that's one of the reasons. Uh, that that's is that, interesting. That's an underdosing is one of the big reasons. And why are we underdosing? Because we're listening to John Lee's philosophy. So if those women were coming to our pharmacy and we were already dosing a lot, we were able to um, recommend more progesterone to to these women. Uh, because we had good results with the PMS with, with more progesterone. However, I did hear a lecture by John Lee, and he said, oh, well, if you have symptoms come up when you use Progest, just continue using it, and in nine months, they'll go away. In well, nine when- <laughs> months. Is it nine months because, yeah, women are just getting past the menopause experience, or is it because uh, well, it's actually well, doing something? They're actually getting probably some tissue accumulation of effects of progesterone, which which could be a good thing. But I know you can get rid of those symptoms in hours or a day <laughs> or two uh, from the PMS experience. So there's no reason to torture yourself. And I also believe when those symptoms come up, that's a danger zone. You shouldn't be there with uh, enhanced headache and enhanced uh, irritability, anxiety. It's not a good place to be, and you don't have to be there. You don't have to stay there. Um, more progesterone is needed, and it's needed fast. 
Hey, I'm butting in for a quick second. If you enjoy the content brought to you in this podcast, consider supporting Hack My Age by becoming a patron on patreon.com. This is where you can drop a tip or become a member for the price of a coffee. Members get special material, free coaching, and private Zoom calls. Join us by going to patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash hack my age. Thanks for your support. Now let's get back to the podcast. What are your thoughts on the difference that so we've talked about the 24 hour hormone uh, urine test, which is you basically pee in a cup for 24 hours and send that to the lab. And then you mentioned the saliva. And then there's the Dutch test, the dried urine test for comprehensive hormones. We use pee on four or five sticks and you let it dry and then you send it to the lab. Now, a lot of women in the menopause space do really like the, the Dutch test. So what are your thoughts on that compared to other types of testing? Is this accurate? Is it the best we got? Is there something better? I want to say one more thing about saliva that's interesting. Is I mentioned GC mass spec and um, as identifying the molecule accurately as the molecule, progesterone is progesterone and not dihydroprogesterone or anything else. So in saliva testing, there's, um, it uses radioimmune assay, enzyme-induced assay. Companies differ in their process, but it is not 100% accurate. Um, I was at the Endocrine Society meeting once, and there was a company selling uh, test kits to saliva testing companies. And um, theirs was for testosterone. And the company told me that half of what was reported as testosterone was dihydrotestosterone, bleed over into other hormones. If you look at the structures of all these hormones, they're very similar. Now, to my surprise, I was just at A4M, and uh, ZRT just um, announced that in their blood spot and their saliva testing, they were starting to use LC mass spec. LC is liquid chromatography, and this is a technique as well that identifies the exact molecule. So it's going to be really interesting to see how that shakes out. Now moving over to Dutch, Dutch uses um, LC mass spec, identifies the molecule specifically, that's a plus. Um, they make a assumption that spots are uh, close enough to, to the gold standard. It really is a gold standard, 24 hour a year in collection that it's close enough for practical purposes. So what they don't reveal in these spots is what the number was for you in the various spots. And um, probably if they gave that to a practitioner or a patient, they wouldn't know what to do with that anyway. And they use an algorithm to give you a number. So is, is that number really reflective of your, your clinical picture or not. Now, um, it's a little bit difficult because um, the Dutch test has huge marketing dollars behind it, and it's made the test more widely available than um, other companies who um, believe that they're doing their science and the science speaks for itself. Uh, Dutch is not uh, represented in the medical scientific literature as uh, being accurate. And it's worrisome to me that practitioners who are using this test to guide their clinical decisions could be um, challenged 
by their regulatory boards and saying, you know, where's your evidence? The only evidence that is published at all is what the Dutch lab published themselves. So and normally in science, this is not acceptable. You have to have independent reviews and uh, verification that what you're doing is, is accurate. So we don't know that. Um, and uh, sometimes there's sufficient deviation um, in, in the Dutch reports. Um, I've seen some head-on tests with both that it could affect what the clinician might be thinking about using it. Um, has advantages of doing lots of hormones and they added the oat test. You can, um, you can also get that independently. You don't have to get it from that particular company. So um, it's um, estrogen metabolites, but the 24-hour urine companies do that too. It's nice, nice to see more, more metabolites of hormones. That's a positive of urine testing in general. Then you pee on a piece of paper. And um, that's poor scientific technique too, because how do you prove that you've gotten every bit of hormone, which is actually very tiny amounts, off that paper? So there's another company that's introduced basically the same thing. They eliminate the paper. You just take a sample of the aliquot and send that in so they don't have to deal with the extraction process, which you have inherent error with that. So um, I, I really don't like to see uh, things marketed and uh, nobody questioning the the real science behind things. It's uh, well, it's, it's such it's a yeah. It's pretty much yeah. The marketing is huge, and <laughs> I do the Dutch test. My doctor's wants me to do the Dutch test and I've done it and I do it and she still likes it. So, uh, and, and I understand that the way I understand and correct me if I'm wrong, we need to see metabolites because we can take a blood test and see how much estrogen you are as progesterone or estradiol you have in your blood, but we don't know how it's converting, how it's behaving in the body, how, what are the metabolites that are on there? And that for me sounds pretty important. And that's what a Dutch test can offer. But now I learned about the 24 hour test and you think, oh, okay. Oh, that also, offers it too. Yes. And, and that's, that is scientific. If you look on PubMed or whatever, you'll find some basis for that. You'll find some basis for, for saliva testing too. I found a, a great deal of information in forensic medicine about hormones and saliva, surprisingly. And those studies gave me more information on, on the pluses and the negatives than the labs will tell you. They often leave off the negatives. What the test doesn't show you. So, um, so it's it's pretty fascinating. All in all, we don't have a good test for, no. for, for hormones. <laughs> but do you understand why women want to be tested, right? And it, when you walk into a doctor's office and you say, can I test, whether it's right or wrong, and the doctor says, no, you don't need to, it can make a woman feel uncomfortable. I'm doing some, you know, you don't give a drug without testing certain things often too. So I don't like that answer, but I understand why you know, with the serum, uh -huh. the blood serum tests, I get it that your hormones are all over the place. Trying to test your hormones, you know, it'd be very difficult, right? But we, we have to yeah. find, we we have to find some better ways. Uh, are you, um, do you know Dave Asprey and his biohacking? 
Mm-hmm. Um, this ideas. is biohacking menopause, so <laughs> yes. I think that's pretty yeah. That's that's right. And that concept I think is really good. And the concept is is to find exactly what's working for you and what's not working for you. So we can find other we can find tests that um, are working to verify or not working. And I, I have a theory about one thing. We have these um, watches and we have Uber rings that can measure your heart rate variability. And so if you are um, sympathetic dominant or parasympathetic, and I have a theory as we're trying to work with women who are way too high in estrogen relative to progesterone, they high anxiety, they're sympathetic dominant. If we're using enough progesterone, would not your ring tell you that you've moved to parasympathetic? If you need an independent assessment, would not this be better? than a lab test, a serum test who doesn't tell you anything at all when you're putting on cream, wouldn't this be a better measure? And and I don't know. I put this out to a big Facebook group, but nobody's really using the ring very much. So I didn't get much response. Yeah, biotracking is still not uh, mainstream. But, but my question to you still is, Yes, I agree. I think we should look at all things. We look at our symptoms, how we're feeling, uh, and try to find other data. I mean, that's just the biohacker in me. But these tests that show you the metabolites, whether it's the 24-hour urine test or the Dutch test, it shows you how your estrogen is metabolizing down a good, safe pathway or maybe not such a safe pathway. Is is And that, to me, is is gold. I, I I think that would be very important for a woman to know, no? It's it's good, but you could also see that if you were still sympathetic sympathetic dominant because of too much estrogen effect. The metabolites that you're trying to avoid are stronger metabolites and more produce more estrogen activity more than you want. So one thing I I do like, and this is in assessment of, of patients I do like serum testing with multiple hormone systems because uh, the urine test is very limited in what hormones they're testing. We're very dependent on insulin glucose, pituitary hormones, thyroid hormones, vitamin D, um, inflammatory markers. And so um, Life Extension put together a female elite panel, male elite panel, which has all these things. And for instance, thyroid's a big thing as you age. So it doesn't do you much good to look at estrogen, progesterone. You're sort of at the bottom of the pit here. And my hierarchy of hormones you should pay attention to is really insulin glucose first, adrenals next, thyroid next, finally sex hormones. So we, we have this, again, kind of tunnel vision. Menopause is just about sex hormones. And it's not, it's about the whole cascade of hormones. And we really need to know that too. And there's some real gold there. Uh, Failing to look at that is a big problem. You can use supplemental estrogen, progesterone, testosterone. And if your vitamin D is low, it doesn't work as well. And you failed to look at that. And um, if, if you're not methylating very well, you can look at homocysteine, or you can do your genetic testing. There's, there's more than one way to, to get to some of these questions. 
for instance, let's say a serum functional test. Suppose you're, you're taking DHEA and you look at DHEA in your serum and you look on the dose response curve and you pick a time and you check it. So it tells you if your DHEA has gone up. Now, if you test DHEA and estradiol and testosterone, now you've shown uh, DHEA metabolizing into other hormones and you know if you've done that successfully. So uh, keeping in mind what, what tests actually are functional rather than just a spot in time makes a difference too. Oh, I agree. Yes. I also 100% believe in testing all the others that you mentioned, the insulin and the vitamin D. And, and there's so much thyroid particular, so many women going through this transition have thyroid issues. But when you, when you get a thyroid test and say you're hypothyroid, your doctor gives you some medication, but the doctor also retests you to see if you're not, you're not overdosing. And, and if, or if you actually came and said, I have some heart palpitations, they'd may go, okay, well, you're probably having too high of a dosage, but, but wouldn't the same hold for female for, for taking the hormones, hormone therapy in the, in, in the, in estradiol and progesterone and testosterone, wouldn't the doctor want to test you to make sure you're not overdosing or you're not underdosing eat whether or not your symptoms uh, say one thing or another. Okay. That's, that's a pitfall. As I said, when, uh, if you're doing serum and when is, when is your uh, time frame between dosing, if you're following thyroid and you use TSH as your monitor, it doesn't tell you much. Um, your thyroid might improve if you add progesterone and correct the estrogen and, um, progesterone imbalance, or it might improve if you do something with your insulin resistance. You don't have to uh, use thyroid hormone. There's, there's a million different, different ways to look at that. You might be iodine deficient, and that should be your, your treatment, not, not thyroid hormone. So it's, um, it's very complicated. And so, so for thyroid, if you've uh, read Broda Barnes' work, your, your body temperature is a good measure of your thyroid effect rather than the blood tests um, that you're looking for thyroid because thyroid does two things. It gives you energy and it keeps your body temperature. It's, it's your heat source. So, so that's, it's an important marker. Yet we ignore some of that. I, I knew a patient, her hair was falling out. She was going to an endocrinologist. She said to collect her hair in a bag. She, in the doctor's office, they dutifully measured her body temperature would be 93 and 94 during the day in the office. And this endocrinologist completely ignored an e-thyroid. That's strange. <laughs> yeah. Interesting. Yeah. It's, it's a hundred percent, you know, there's, it is complex and yeah, you know, you could be hot and maybe it's related to thyroid or maybe it's because you got hot flashes and you got low estrogen or too much estrogen. Right. And that's, why it's got to be a, you have to have a good doctor and put the puzzle pieces of the puzzle together because it can be so many things. But I do, I do encourage women to just keep learning more about the hormones too, because rather than being put on a drug, uh, perhaps they could do that. Or maybe it's taking a thyroid hormone and not the estrogen. I don't know. And then that's why we'd like to have the guidance of an expert to do this. But I going going back though, I, I I'm still a little confused on the the pathways, the 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 two, the four, the 16, you know, the OH pathways. These are the pathways that that the the hormones, if you it's the estrogen hormones that we are concerned about. Those I simplify it saying there's good pathways and bad pathways. 
you don't think it's important to pay attention to that or whether or not you're on hormones? It's still, it's still hypothesis for one thing. And ah. you, can, you can change that to uh, less stimulation, both with uh, DIM or making sure you're methylation, because as soon as those hormones are methylated, that picture changes entirely. So if your methylation pathways are fine, that's not such a big deal. But we need to test it somehow. And, and, and if the Dutch test isn't very accurate in that sense, uh, you know, I don't know what else to do because, or 24 hour a year. Um, you can experiment with those things and probably methylation is much more important and you have more ways to test that. Um, like I said, homocysteine or you do the MTHFR genetic testing. And even that, I was just at a conference and there was a big discussion between um, presenters whether each of those markers were important. Which was one more important than the other or, or what? Nobody could come to consensus. It's uh, when... When we do lab testing, uh, we have such a sense that that's the important thing rather than what's going on in your body as, as a whole. Well, they both need to be taken into consideration for sure. This is how I would weigh it, 90 plus percent on the results in your body and maybe 10% on testing. And we have this impetus, and, and this often is the case, the test is believed over you. And that's very, very bad. And particularly thyroid, um, you can have, you can walk in your doctor's office with pale skin and fine hair and low body temperature. And if your TSH is in the range, you're dismissed and your body is calling out for thyroid. Um, so what good is the test? Yeah. Well, that's why you take deeper testing or, <laughs> yeah, yes. you know, because yeah. you can say, I still feel bad. So let's, you know, do some other right, tests or right, more tests. Right. And so you get, figure out if it's the thyroid and then you take your thyroid hormone. It's, it is so complex. And that's why we need good, good doctors or good guidance on this, because it's such a hard puzzle to put together. Because when you think of symptoms, all, all those hundred symptoms you mentioned, they could also be symptoms of something else too, not just progesterone deficiency. Right. Uh, but I do like the fact that if you do, it's, I kind of like to take when I tackle a problem, I kind of like to start with the least invasive or the most safer things first, and then you gradually build up. And maybe maybe you do need antidepressants. I don't know. But that's sort of the last case scenario, like surgery, I guess. If you don't, you know, if, unless you get hit by a car, you got to fix your leg right away. But if you're having some joint issues, that's that's the way I've been taking it. And there's surgery is always there. Let's try to figure it out. If just a little bit of progesterone cream can fix it, my goodness, like how easy is that? So I just think that more women need to be aware of that. And I'm, I'm glad I would love to get that list as well. Put a link in the notes if you can share that with me. Sure, sure. It's in, uh, it's in my blogs. Cool. But I can, I'll send you the link. Send me the link. There's one question somebody came up with me for me today when they listened to uh, a live that I've done. And I mentioned the phantom smell that women can have as a symptom of menopause where they smell smoke or they smell gasoline or they smell and no one else is smelling it. And that's what they call phantom smells. And what she asked, well, is this a deficiency of progesterone? Is it excessive estrogen? What do you think that is like, how can you relieve that symptom? Because it's such a rare one, but it does happen. Okay. You've got me. And uh, I, I don't know, but I would also look into what's going on with the microbiome at that point, um, because one of the big problems in 
hormone therapies is the microbiome is off and favoring candida overgrowth. And you can get so many weird things from that. And one of the things we were plagued with um, for a while was one doctor's patients were um, reporting a metallic taste in their mouth using progesterone. And uh, we, we had some tubes that we might put progesterone in, but there was no metal. They were plastic tubes, right? <laughs> so, <laughs> That's so funny. Well, that to and me, I that... finally, I finally found this was related to candida overgrowth after a few years. Uh, so I, I would look, look into the microbiome first and then see what happens. If you're using progesterone, hydrocortisone, testosterone, and you have a candida overgrowth, it will flare with those hormones. And this is, this is a huge problem with, with many. So when you get these aberrations, that's, I, I always uh, go to candida next to see what the heck is happening with the microbiome. Interesting. That's um, a good bacteria place. Bacteria and candida can affect your hormone levels. There are organisms that can create 17-beta estradiol. There are things that block it. There are things that block progesterone, testosterone. Um, it's it's uh, really a another very big complexion for, for dealing with all this. And uh, it's, a, it's another problem because what's the best treatment for a candida overgrowth and reestablishing your gut microbiome? And this is so important to our, our general health that that's got to be looked at. So if anybody has trouble, particularly progesterone, because you need bigger amounts of it. It has the most impressive activity. So if you end up with any kind of gut changes, the diarrhea, constipation, you get sinus changes, you get brain fog, all these these weird things are, are point to look look at candida as as an issue. Look at your tongue, see if it's coated. <laughs> that I kind know. of thing. I, <laughs> seriously, no, actually I often think that uh to me, my first thought was actually the brain, because we know that our senses of smell are regulated in the brain. So I was thinking that could be another avenue. But the whole, you know, the whole which hormone should I, you know, take more of, take less of, it, it also caught me off guard. But it's so many. There's so many other ways, and I'm glad you mentioned the gut because gut health is a is a huge, huge one uh, as we age in general. So we can, you know, we need to take a look at that. I have so many more questions, and I'm going to have to let you go. But I think we need to part two if you're open to that because I still want to talk about this window of opportunity to starting hormones. Is it ever too late? Is there a is there um, an optimal age when to start and compound more more on the compounding versus the versus the prescribed? I, I, I do have uh, it will take us another hour. So if you if you be open to it, I'd love to get another session with you. <laughs> you My pleasure. <laughs> great information. Really, I'm so you've given us some so many uh, th things to think about to question, to, to do a little bit more research on for our own selves. I, before I let you go, I would love to hear about just briefly about your transition into menopause and how did that go? And, and what did you do? Or are you doing anything at all? Or did you need to? Okay. So as, as it turns out, and it, it's a great boon to me to be in a compounding pharmacy when I was about 40 is when I started using hormones. And I was reading about progesterone uh, being a lack of progesterone was a cause for these little wrinkles around your eyes. So I thought, 
Oh, I'll start using those. Progesterone creams are on my, on my face. And in about four months, most of the fibrocystic breast disease I had disappeared. Oh, wow. Interesting. And I had, you know, years of uh, mammograms and stuff. And I talked to uh, Dr. Eugene Shippen. He said, we always get rid of cauliflower breasts with progesterone and iodine. So the last lump, the biggest one, disappeared when I added iodine. A colleague of mine also had the same problem. She also added dim before everything resolved, but completely gone. So, uh, But you started this in your 40s just because of wrinkles on your face. It wasn't because of (laughs) menopausal symptoms, right? And you you get the byproduct. It didn't occur occur to me I could treat my fibrocystic breast disease. So ignorance way back then. So I continued. And somewhere during perimenopause, I had two very heavy periods. And of course, I knew what to do. So I said, oh, I haven't been using my progesterone as regularly or in the first part of the cycle. So that completely disappeared just the next month because I knew what to do. And I, I'm hypopituitary, as it turns out. What does that How mean? My, um, my pituitary hormones are low. Like if I take a TSH for um, thyroid, it'll be like 0.05, like non-existent. I had a, a TRH challenge and it flatlined. My pituitary would not put up more TSH. This is secondary hypothyroidism. And it's... Uh, Hyper, so hyperthyroidism. Hi, no, no, hypo, hypo. low hypo. TSH. You're, you're not stimulating your thyroid to do anything. It's not getting the proper signal. Okay. Pituitary. Although some doctors would look at that and say you're hyper, but you're not. You're, you have secondary hypo thyroidism. So the other uh, pituitary hormones are affected too. So um, I grew up in uh, central Wisconsin, and it turns out has the highest atrazine level in the groundwater in the whole country. It's a lot of potato farming, and that's a pituitary toxin. So I I think that might be responsible. So what I've done um, since is use the secondary hormones. I use adrenal hormones, thyroid hormones, sex hormones. And um, I've had no trouble at all, really. <laughs> so, Amazing. What were your symptoms? Um, symptoms are a hypopituitary person. It, well, it's also, you know, hypothyroid. So, so low thyroid symptoms, plus um, troubles with obesity. A hypopituitary body is big breasts, big butt, and a hangy down belly. You've probably seen this body shape. So it's it's like it pandemic in my, my hometown. You if you go out for a holiday, you can see people with this shape all over. So that's why I think it's environmental. Interesting. So um I'm I'm now seventy four, been using hormones all this time. You're seventy four years old? Oh wow. That's well (laughs) reverse time with those hormones. Everybody go to the YouTube video and watch. (laughs) I think a bit. Um, uh, I think it's uh, definitely made a difference. Yeah, I thought you were going to tell me about your journey like that happened just a few years ago. (laughs) (laughs) This was a while back. Um, Yeah, I'm very comfortable. I always have been. Maybe I had um, under a stressful condition, maybe I've had a tiny hot flash, but I know what it is. But I say, okay, too much stress, or I'll use a little extra progesterone or something. Um, Incredible. Yeah. Well, thank you for sharing that. Uh, that yeah, information. Yeah. Yes. We always and, like to hear. 
Yeah, we'd like to hear other women's journeys as well and what they've done about it. And we've all have a different one. So uh, it, it's you, you've been on yeah, your hormones forever and they seem to be serving you well. You're still here and you're looking good. And uh, yeah, I I do a lot of travel. I work and um, do. I just got a new relationship started. Everything's good. Oh, fantastic. So before I let you go, then tell us about your coaching programs. I know on your website, you've got um, the wellnessbydesignproject.com. You've got loads of uh, things for us. To, I think people should check out the blog. You have some recommended products and you have a coaching program. What, what do you do with your clients? So I just, I offer a one hour consultation and that's pretty good for, uh, you know, some simple basic questions and uh, you, you've been researching and uh, you want to check on your direction and, and go, it's like a one and done. And then I offer a three month coaching, which um, I think um, women, uh, if you're having trouble at all, you really should uh, investigate that because I'm available to talk to for, for those three months and answer any questions that come up and help with the direction you're going and saying, do more of this, do less of this kind of thing. And, and it's, it can be pretty invaluable. I'm working with some very, very severe cases. Uh, PMDD diagnosed women are, are really some of the most abused women out there. What's and, PMDD? Uh, it's, it's a uh, kind of the emotional PMS symptoms. And they created this category so they could drug you. And they teach these women to avoid progesterone at all costs. And oh, wow. so they start out with antidepressants and birth control pills. And then they use the drugs like Lupron to block all your hormones. And when all that doesn't work, they uh, give you an oophorectomy. And so these poor women are still suffering from everything from progesterone deficit, yet they're been trained that they have to avoid it. They're somehow sensitive to it. And they may have had this reaction already. They may have tried it with a low dose and gotten worse. So they, they really know they're sensitive. So they have to overcome all that thinking to get on, on a different path. And that's pretty, pretty tough. But I was, I was coaching a woman and we're talking and then I remembered my philosophy of insulin glucose and so she's got this instability. So I'm asking her what she ate and she sent me um, what she was eating and she's in a stressful job, missing a lot of meals. And I was remembering way back Katerina Dalton, she instructed her PMS patients to eat every three hours. Now she wasn't really careful about carbs or protein and fat, but just the, every three hours. So I asked her to <laughs> eat every, every three hours. And it made a huge difference. And then I, I saw what she was eating. I said, could we go a little more paleo instead of so many carbs and nuts and things, which can suppress your thyroid because she's low thyroid too. And it made a huge difference, huge. Just that simple intervention on top of progesterone, which helps with that too. But that the eating was a big piece. That's incredible. Yeah, I always tell People, you can't out hormone a bad diet and lifestyle. Like it's nice to have those, but, <laughs> but it's You're, not a total miracle. Uh, it is a miracle for many women in many ways, but I do like them to get on that, you know, good, good basic base, the the foundation, the foundation that we all know that it's, is good for us. You're a hundred percent right on that. 
People can find you at thewellnessdesignproject.com. I'm going to have links to this in the show notes. You also have YouTube videos and your and your podcast. And, and, and I'm, I would have a link to the blog if you can share that with me. I'll have your email as well. People want to get in touch with you. And are there any last words for a woman going through menopause? Oh, yeah. Don't, don't settle, as I said before. Don't don't settle till you're you're absolutely happy with how you feel and how you're aging because it's possible and hormones are a pillar of successful aging. If you go to the anti aging meetings, that's got to be there. So it's it's a big piece. It's not the whole piece, but it's a huge piece. So you should know it and use it. Oh, thank you so <laughs> much, Carol. I can't wait to have okay. you on again. Have a good okay. day. And everyone who's listening, a good day, good night, good morning, wherever you are. And we'll see you next time. Take care. Okay. All right. Bye-bye. Hey, did you enjoy the podcast? Don't forget to subscribe to be notified of all the new episodes and leave a review to help build the tribe. It's a small act of kindness that brings me big benefits and helps others find this amazing content. The best thing you can do is share. Sharing is caring. Statements made on this podcast have not been evaluated by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. Anything we say or products we mention are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Information provided by this podcast is not a substitute for personal medical advice and not intended to replace a one-on-one relationship with a qualified healthcare professional. It is intended as a sharing of knowledge and information from the personal research and experience of me and my guests.